simply in terms of figures, a 10% increase in mobile broadband in a given country increases the GDP by 1.5%. So that's huge. So the power of technology, the power of communications, you know, of digital services is, is really a huge potential. Ending world poverty, it's a monumental challenge. Over the decades, it's been a slow and steady grind to bring the standard of living up to bearable levels for hundreds of millions of people around the world. We've made huge progress. Since 1990, the global rates of extreme poverty have gone from around 40% to around 10%. Fantastic. The rapid economic development of countries like India, China, Brazil, Nigeria, and many others is playing a big part in bringing that number down. As is a concerted effort by the international community to invest in a developing world and economically isolated communities. However, 710 million people around the world are still in extreme poverty, currently earning below $1.90 per day. And that is pretty appalling. One of the UN's sustainable development goals is to end world poverty by 2030, but many estimates put us way off track for achieving that. Not ideal. You don't need me to tell you that in the last few years, the world has changed markedly. Technologies to connect us all have become not only more affordable, but more commonplace, even in formerly remote communities. Telecoms and IT infrastructure are reaching out to previously untouched parts of the world. So, how can we leverage that? What can technology do to help end world poverty? That's what we're going to be looking at in this episode, following on from our previous look at how technology can help end world hunger. You're listening to Technology Untangled, a show which looks at the rapid evolution of technology and unravels the way it's changing our world. I'm your host, Michael Bird. So first we need to set out our stall here because solving poverty isn't as simple as just getting money into people's pockets. Clearly that's an important part of it, but on a wider scale, it's about allowing people to connect to the wider world and having the tools to be able to participate in it. Tools like internet access, access to banking or academic and skills-based education, all of which will eventually lead to more people getting more economically active and building a better future for themselves. So where do you start? Well, the World Economic Forum seems like a pretty good place. They are the world body for public and private cooperation, and Isabel Marrow heads up their ICT and communications body. She champions improving the economic prospects of people around the world through digital inclusion and democratisation of technology. Essentially, getting it into the hands of as many people as possible. Why? Well, because the results, they speak for themselves. Simply in terms of figures, a 10% increase in mobile broadband in a given country increases the GDP by 1.5%. So that's huge. So the power of technology, the power of communications, you know, of digital services is, is really a huge potential. I'm going to give you an example, which, uh, you know, it's a personal example of early 2000. I went to Bangladesh and one of the mobile operator that was a leading operator there took us in a village. And at the time they used to call this the, the 
village ladies project or initiative. We met this woman was probably in her 40s, mid 40s. She had a phone in her hand and that phone, a mobile phone, think 2000, it was still the little flip phone, you know, that was black and white. There was no apps. There was nothing. It was purely just to make calls and use SMS and, you know. So that was a business that became her business. So she was allowing all the villagers to make calls, to send SMSs. And then this became free GUs, where there was applications, where there was, you know, internet access. That's women. And, I, and, and you know, to me, it's still, it's probably one of the, the moments in my life, in my professional career that really made me want to stay in what I thought up to there was quite grim, you know, ICT tech sector. This woman was crying and she was saying that basically that phone enabled her to not only connect the whole village and therefore contribute to the welfare and a wealthier village because every villager could effectively make more business, could check crops on the mobile phones, could do so much more business. It also enabled her personally as a business to send her three daughters to university. And that was just the power of one phone in one village. So multiply that by everything that now a mobile phone has, has effectively become, because these days you can do everything, even if you're in a remote village. So absolutely, does it change people's lives? Does it empower people? Absolutely. And I think we, we realized during COVID how the countries that did have digital services and access really did much better than those who didn't, because they could continue, their economies could continue to function. Yeah, that is an absolutely astonishing figure. A 1.5% growth in GDP just from moderate improvements to mobile data connectivity. For a country like the Democratic Republic of Congo with a GDP of around 50 billion and where the average per capita income is just $500 per year, that equates to a $750 million boost. It might seem like an obvious question, but... Why? What economic potential does mobile data connectivity actually unlock? And how do we open up to underserved communities? For us living in the Western world, it, it seems obvious that everybody has a mobile phone. It is not if you come from, uh, you know, underserved or unserved regions in maybe in Africa, in, in Southeast Asia, but communities as well, you know, in Europe and, and the US, as we saw with COVID, you know, that was really, uh, I think, um, a turning point moment where we realized that talking about the digital gap was no longer just uh, an issue that was about least developed economies, but we also encountered that problem in the US and in Europe. You know, I live in the in the heart of Manhattan and there were communities that didn't have access to services or had access but could not afford them. So, you know, when we talk about inclusivity, I think one of the big elements, it's uh, we, we often think about access, providing access to communications to people. But it's not just about that. I think 90% of the world potentially has access to a network. You know, the coverage is there. The infrastructure is there. So that is not the issue. The issue is to address the affordability of services and the usability. So making sure that it's affordable, making sure that people know how to use, you know, these services. So that's why it becomes really important for our industry, the ICT industry, to work with the healthcare industry and develop digital application, digital services that are really going to make people able to access services that they otherwise wouldn't be able to access simply because maybe they live in remote areas or because, you know, they, they have um, not the right setting in terms of insurance, etc. 
Same thing for education. We need to ensure that a digital connectivity is going to arrive in every school, but also how do you provide access remotely for those who cannot go to school? So that's another area. Financial services is huge. You know, banking the unbanked. The way you are going to bank the unbanked, if you speak to MasterCard, Visa and and the big banks, it's happening via digital services. That's how they can access. That's how they can make payments. That's how there is a big uh, remittance traffic that is going on where, where it can fuel the economies. So now we need to look at measures that are going to be a bit longer term. And we came up with a playbook that was looking a little bit more at how you were going to ensure growth, looking at financing mechanisms, trying to pioneer new financing mechanisms for infrastructure and digital services. Because the reason if there are still nearly 3 billion people that are not connected is because from a business perspective, in some areas, there is no return on investment for the investors who are the telco operators, you know, who are the industry. So we need to come up with with business models, mechanisms that are really going to make sense and are going to be sustainable and are going to, to leave the, the time, if you want, to create this resiliency that we need to create. So building partnerships to get communications technology to those who need it benefits the economy. That's all well and good, but what are organisations actually doing to help? Well, quite a lot, as it turns out. Using their expertise to help alleviate poverty is a popular topic among more ethically-minded tech companies, including Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, my employer. Okay, just bear with us, right? We're investing a huge amount into connecting the world. Brian Tippins is HPE's Chief Sustainability Officer, and he says HPE is contributing their expertise in data analytics and AI, as well as finance and staff expertise. I think our mission is kind of very broad and wide-reaching. Part of it's the partnerships that we do with organizations that are around leveraging our technology. And in most cases, we're making that technology available at no cost to those organizations to do the investigations into artificial intelligence and big data and analytics around that. On the other side, we make available to our team members around the globe lots of opportunities for them to contribute and receive matching funds from the Hewlett-Packard Enterprise Foundation around investments in organizations that are doing interesting, innovative research in these regards. And it doesn't have to be the big players. It could be some small players as well. We have a signature initiative we call Accelerating Impact, where we have campaigns throughout the year to allow our team members to focus on a certain number of what we call tech nonprofits. They're sort of almost like your startups, but in the nonprofit world, they've got some innovative tech technology around some social cause, including poverty eradication and solving hunger issues. And team members can make a contribution to these organizations and receive back some matching funds. And so just an example of sort of this holistic approach that we take, it's on some level about donations, financial support, it's around leveraging our technology. In some cases, it's leveraging the volunteer resources of our team members. So, you know, very much a holistic approach to bring to bear the whole weight of Hewlett-Packard Enterprise across the globe. So... Why do you think it's important for large organizations to help developing communities? One, it's about being tied to our purpose as an organization, advancing the way people live and work. And, and that's core to our values as a company. And, you know, many large organizations across the globe have similar initiatives. Very selfishly for corporations, it's, it's on some level around making sure that there's a continuing need for the products and services that they offer, right? It's about elevating communities around the world. I think most important, it's around collaboration and cooperation. There's this kind of 
old African proverb. I remember being at the headquarters of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in Seattle, Washington years ago and seeing this proverb on a, on a big banner in their lobby around, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together, right? It's around the fact that we can, through collaboration, achieve things that we couldn't do independently. And there's a responsibility for all corporations where it used to be sort of driven purely by maximizing shareholder value. I think we all now appreciate that we have to meet a number of stakeholder needs, including investing in communities around the world to uplift communities out of poverty. Well, the finance aspect is quite a big one. Because if, as Isabel says, 90% of the world could potentially already be connected somehow, then the blocker is paying for it either simply via funding subscriptions or through loans and bonds which provide resources to bodies dedicated to the democratization of technologies. We talked about these ESG bonds a little with Isabel in the last week's episode on ending world hunger. Alternatively, some bodies are working to get infrastructure in place to help people connect. Or as HPE are doing, working to provide funding to people doing cool things. Now, one company doing some pretty cool things is the Microbit Educational Foundation. The group was formed in a partnership between the BBC, Microsoft, the British Council, Arm, Lenovo, and more. Now, they're tackling the democratisation of technology at its very core by getting millions of tiny programmable computers into schools around the world in order to get kids coding from an early age. The computer is so small, cheap and compact that it can be sent out to any corner of the world. And the foundation has focused on making it easy to learn and use. Kids can be up and coding in just a few minutes. As can adults. I know, I've got one. The foundation CEO is Gareth Stockdale. So what is the microbit and how is getting them into schools going to help end world poverty? We're a not-for-profit and our mission is to inspire every child to create their best digital future. And we do this through a small device called the Microbit, where we try and get more children, especially those from underrepresented groups and more girls, taking their first steps with technology. Microbit is a great tool because it's, um, it gets their code off the screen and into the hands and allows them to really make a difference to problems that are important to them or or follow their passions whether that be sport or design or you know just messing around with their friends and they can use technology to do that but that that's basically our sort of philosophy is sort of a low floor so you can get started within sort of 10 seconds with wide walls so you know that you can go and do lots of stuff and then a high ceiling you know, you can get started using Scratch or I think you probably use Microsoft Make Code. We spend a lot of time speaking to teachers to try and remove any barriers because as a teacher in front of sort of 30 children, what you don't want to happen is, you know, you don't want to feel uncomfortable or unconfident in what you're doing. The microbit is an incredible piece of technology. It's simple, it's robust, and it's a complete sandbox. So kids around the world can use it to design solutions for their own problems. They are cheap to make, easy to use. They've got USB, Bluetooth, a solder pad connection, so they are expandable. And more importantly, they're designed to be great fun straight out of the box. Over the last few years, the organization has been running programs around the world with more launching every year. So we've got a lot of... um 
programs that were just really starting in sub-Saharan Africa and other geographies. So we are currently just starting working with the British Council, a pilot in South Africa. We did a pilot a couple of years ago. We've got another pilot that we're just starting. So that is in 200 schools, educating 400 teachers and aiming to reach 8,000 students working with the Department for Basic Education in South Africa. So again, you know, these pilots are really important to understand the context in which people are working, you know, what are the barriers to using this technology so that we can really so then build on that program and expand it. We've also got a program in Kenya, which again is a pilot working with 30 schools, aiming to hit 1,600 students, and one in West Bengal, which starts at the end of this month, which is again, working with 50 private schools and 50 public schools in West Bengal. And that's based around our Do Your Bit program, which is our global challenge, which is based around the Sustainable Good Development Goals. So that's around creating technology and solutions using the microbit to address the SDGs, which you feel are, are important to you in your local setting. So we'll be doing teacher training, creating some master teachers that can then go out to those 100 schools educate more teachers, more children, and get them to then enter their solutions into the Do Your Bit Challenge, which is our global challenge. Getting communities to start building their own solutions is a key part of solving world poverty. It's something that HPE are keen to focus on in their own work on eradicating poverty, as Brian Tippins explains. There has to be a lot of emphasis on working with those local communities to how we make technology accessible to, understandable to those local communities, whether it's changing the technology of their interface. In these underrepresented regions, it's women who are doing the majority of, of, of the farming, in many cases with lower levels of literacy and access to education. And so it's something that we think about when, under this concept of, of digital inclusion, not just technology for technology's sake, but being able to understand we don't leave communities behind when we think about how to best apply that technology on the ground in communities. And so we think a lot about the interfaces, but also the education behind being able to leverage this technology in a really responsible way. Yeah, because I guess like in some way there's creating these technologies to be able to solve these problems. And that's maybe a relatively easy thing to do. But actually when it trickles down to the individuals, that's probably when it gets quite tricky. Yeah, completely, because there's historical fear of companies coming in and flying in, dropping in solutions and then leaving. What happens when those corporations leave? So on one hand, we don't want to leave, right? We've got these bold aspirations of collaborating for the long term to drive change and, and, and making a lasting contribution to those communities, but also equipping those communities through local partnerships, through education, through you know leaving technology behind so that it's not just us doing the work as these multinational corporations, we're partnering with local communities to drive real lasting change. Education is something that's at the core of efforts to use tech to lift people out of poverty not just to help people get the best use out of it, but because education helps to democratise technology. Quite simply, if you know how to use something, that's empowering. And it's something that Gareth Stockdale and the Microbit Foundation feature at the core of their being. There's too many people that think that technology isn't for them or they haven't got access to take those first steps with technology. You know, we don't necessarily want everybody to become 
you know, a professional coder. Not everybody wants to, not everybody's cut out to do that. But we think that allowing everybody to understand the concepts of computational thinking, to have those digital skills is really important. Not only because technology, which has been accelerated due to the recent pandemic, is impacting on every aspect of our working life, no matter generally what you do. But it also has such an effect on the way that we act as a society and the things that we're doing. So if you haven't got the skills or the understanding of those concepts, then you cannot take a full or the fullest part in the debate around what technology should be doing for us in the future. And that's that's really what we mean sort of by democratising. It's allowing people the access and the opportunity to further their careers and their life chances by having access to technology and also allowing them to have the knowledge to be able to debate and to get involved in you know, solutions and debates that are, are shaping our whole society. I'd love to just get your opinion on that. Like, How do you think education can help eradicate poverty? That's a really big question. Um, <laughs> so thanks for that on a Monday morning. Um, how can technology eradicate poverty? I think from our perspective... You know, there's a huge digital skills gap around the world. The figures from Accenture that they published last year said that there's 11.5 trillion of cumulative GDP growth that will be lost if the digital skills gap is not addressed. So I think technology has a huge role to play in terms of allowing people to fill those jobs and to give, you know, especially if we, as an organisation, we're trying to broaden participation and get more girls, more underrepresented groups. There's a huge amount of jobs out there. We think that by broadening participation and by getting more girls and more underrepresented groups, you will create better technology, which is more representative of the wider society and therefore work better for society. And in that way, it will help to, you know, improve things for everybody. For us as an organisation, you know, we think there's sort of stepping stones, you know, that by getting more more children involved in technology, we create better and more equitable solutions for everybody. We give them the chance to follow careers where there's huge digital skills gaps and huge opportunities. And by concentrating on underrepresented groups and girls, we can play our part in trying to help end extreme poverty. Education is also something the World Economic Forum is keen to tackle when it comes to alleviating world poverty. And it's not just about education and connectivity in schools. Giving adults the digital literacy skills to make use of their technology and maximise their own opportunities is vitally important to helping them escape poverty, as Isabel Mauro explains. What we've seen in particular through Edison Alliance that so many companies, most of our partners this day, really provide strong training, skilling, reskilling programs to really try and help other industries and the education sector really skill students and beyond students, you know, the, the sort of the adult workforce. Their goal here is to find partners from the private sector that uh, really helps them a connect every school in the world. For instance, a partner like Ericsson are working hand in hand with them to really develop the software and, and what is needed in terms of mapping, you know, these schools. So there is now a sort of a big map on which schools are now connected to the internet and what is the ambition. So you see all the green dot, the orange dot and the, the red dots. 
So, you know, there are many ways in which they can contribute. Some uh, more from a philanthropical way, they, they give laptops. So everybody's contributing in a, in a different way, but in a, in a very sustainable way. In particular, I would say since, since COVID, definitely. So from that, from that perspective of every school being connected, clearly there are some communities where they are nowhere near a telephone mast, nowhere near any sort of fibre connectivity, copper connectivity. Are there any upcoming technologies that will be making a significant difference? You know, there's like Starlink and OneWeb. Is that sort of stuff actually having quite a big impact? So I think the, the impact is not going to come for satellite alone, just because it's simply, it, it's, it's still a very expensive way of connecting. But what we are seeing more and more is really the satellite players pairing with the mobile operator, the traditional mobile operators, and trying to use, you know, the infrastructure, the backbone, what is in place there. So I think what we are going to see is more and more this type of cooperation. And that's really to be welcomed and applauded because, you know, it, it's really, it really goes beyond everybody's personal commercial interest, but really trying to look at opportunities there. And so I think the goal here is, is really to connect as many schools as we can and balance that with, of course, children that cannot go to school having access to education, you know, for, for remote access. But the preferred solution, I think, is not you don't want to develop a world that is just about remote access, because that is not the goal. The end goal is really for children to be in school and be educated and have access to these digital services. But, you know, we know that uh, not 100% of the children are, are in school and then it will take a very long time before we get to that. So in the meantime, it's also important that we can provide for, for these, these children that are not, you know, currently don't have access to a school, making sure that they don't lose on those years of, uh, of education. Digital literacy is also something HP's Brian Tippins is keen to tackle. After all, HP make very complicated technology. There's not a huge demand for raw AI in most rural communities, so user interfaces need to be developed to offer the most valuable insights and outputs to the end user, rather than just the raw data. That could be as simple as a text message alert service or SMS-based online banking. But to work out the best solution, you need to be able to collaborate with the community and talk to them about their needs. And for that process to work, well, the end users need to have the digital literacy to understand what the technology can offer and to be able to workshop the best uses for it. So it becomes a bit of a chicken and egg problem. And it's exactly the kind of one that kids are now being trained on with the micro bit. And given access to communication tools in schools, we'll be able to solve in a few years. But it's also a challenge that needs to be overcome through working closely with local communities right now, as Brian explains. Yeah, I'd say that's a, that's a great problem that you call out. And I'd say this kind of age of insights and the proliferation of these new technologies around artificial intelligence and the Internet of Things and blockchain and digital transformation. I think they've been a rapid accelerator across industry, but I think they've also kind of heightened that divide that you're talking about, the divide between those who understand how to use that data that's growing at the edge, but also those who don't have access to that technology, don't have kind of the knowledge and understanding to be able to use that, which also raises the, the issue of these inherent potential biases in the technology itself that can kind of lend to that divide. And so we think a lot about not just the generation of that data, but how to make it equitable for communities around the world. And I think a lot of that goes back to the 
Western companies having this foregone conclusion or technology that they bring in versus working with those local communities. So one of the big criticisms that get put on large organizations, large Western global organizations, is stepping to help takes away the power of communities to come up with their own solutions. Yeah, I'd say that there's always sensitivities for these Western-based kind of, particularly U.S.-based multinationals or Western companies kind of diving in with the, you know, the, the savior complex, we frequently say in, in philanthropic circles, where we've got this foregone conclusion around what's going to work best and we sort of fly in with our solutions. And, and those aren't always the best solutions. I think that that there has to be sort of these global local partnerships where you take into consideration the needs and nuances of the local communities. It's a balance. It's, it's bringing in the resources that we have to offer, but understanding the local experience, being driven by collaboration, being driven by partnerships. Democratization of technology is a hugely important part of the UN's sustainable development goals. That is, getting technology into everyone's hands equally. So what can and should major organizations do to help? Well, as Isabel alluded to earlier, they can put their heads together and collaborate. And the World Economic Forum is currently hosting what is likely the most ambitious global public-private collaborations in history. As well as leading the ICT and telco body within the World Economic Forum, Isabel is closely involved in the organization's Edison Group, which exists to bring together tech companies to help the democratization of technology around the world. So Edison was born during COVID really. We started with this action plan and then we had interest from a number of CEOs to really uh, step up. They, they really saw this as a critical moment where governments realized of the importance of connectivity and they thought, okay, this is now the moment where we all need to come together. This is something that the telecom industry cannot solve on its own. We need to really partner with the healthcare industry, with fintechs, with banks, with investors with education, you know, ad tech partners, food, agriculture, you know, we, we really need to find these partners to ensure that we are going to roll out the services that are needed, that everybody, you know, steps in together in terms of investments and, and, and you know, resources, what we need to put together. And so for us, what becomes really important here is, is to work hand in hand with governments, to work and cooperate, collaborate with the industry to understand each other's needs in a way, making sure that the goals that we set as a government or as private sector are aligned. So um, this is led an initiative that uh, that was born in 2020. It is led by Hans Vesberg, who is the CEO of Verizon. So he's really uh, the one who really came to us and said, look, I think the forum can be the fora where you can bring together the UN, the World Bank, you know, all the organizations, all these organizations that are looking into digital inclusion. The forum has the capacity because we have all the industries behind us to really catapult that to a very different level. And so that's what we did. We started and we have now 46 champions that are all CEOs, uh, ministers from different countries. We have four heads of agencies of UN agencies, uh, UNDP, UNICEF, ITU and UNECA, which is the African Commission of the UN. And really the, the role here is, is you know, one, it's to really step up partnerships, so to help all these partners who already have initiatives come together and leverage each other's capabilities, resources in order to scale up what they're already doing. 
The second thing is to really empower governments. And for that, we are working, you know, we have a tool online, which is called the Edison Navigator, where you can find all the best practices, leading practices, use cases, so that governments can exchange these practices, but also businesses to see, you know, what do you need to take your country to the next step of digital inclusion and digital transformation in an inclusive and sustainable way. Bringing the world out of poverty could be an entire podcast series in itself. It's such a huge, complicated topic, and we can really only pick out a few areas to talk about in a single episode. There's so much more detail to be gone into on loan schemes, logistics infrastructure, power grids. The list is endless. But connecting poor communities to the outside world and giving them the skills and training to reach out to the world and grab the opportunities has to be one of the greatest enablers of economic mobility available today. The advent of super cheap handheld computing power and reliable, secure mobile internet access has the capacity to empower tens of millions of people. And even if it's not enough to end world poverty by 2030, it's certainly going to put us on the right track. You've been listening to Technology Untangled. I'm your host, Michael Bird, and a huge thanks to our guests, Brian Tippins, Isabel Marrow, and Gareth Stockdale. You can find more information on today's episode in the show notes. And this is the fifth in the third series of Technology Untangled. And in the next episode, we're going to be looking at when we'll finally be able to trust autonomous vehicles. So be sure to hit subscribe in your podcast app of choice so you don't miss out. And you can also catch up on the last two series. Today's episode was written and produced by Sam Datter and me, Michael Bird. Sound design and editing was by Alex Bennett with production support from Harry Morton and Sophie Cutler. Technology Untangled is a Lower Street production for Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Hold up. 